This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the East-West Psychology Podcast, a forum for the exploration of psyche and spirit. Join our hosts, Jonathan Kay and Stefan Julich, and their guests as they delve into the intersection of psychology, philosophy, world wisdom traditions, the arts, and more. In this episode, we meet Joseph Luizzo, MD, PhD, who is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist and Columbia-trained Buddhist scholar with over 40 years' experience studying the beneficial effects of contemplative practices on healing, learning, and development. Joe shares his story of founding the Nalanda Institute in New York City as an intersection between contemplative approaches from Buddhism, psychology, and psychotherapy. The discussion focuses on the benefits and challenges of the scholar-practitioner model, and Joe shares his approaches to rigorous engagement between his training as an MD and his practice in the Tantric Buddhist tradition. The discussion turns to cross-cultural research frameworks, and we discuss his article, Contemplative Psychotherapy, which is the introduction to a new volume he is the editor of called Advances in Contemplative Psychotherapy, Accelerating Healing and Transformation. In this article, Joe speaks of the central importance of transformation of the body and how it can be beneficial to start approaching the idea of embodiment through the principles of spaciousness and light based upon Buddhist notions of the subtle bodies. Right, welcome to another edition of the East West Psychology Podcast. Stefan and I are here um, with Joe Loizo, who is uh, uh, going to uh, be talking about founding the Nalanda Institute with us, and we're going to discuss one of his uh, more recent uh, articles. He's an editor of a, a new book on contemplative psychotherapy. Uh, before that, I just like to uh, read a little bit of a, a short bio about, about Joe, so you can get to know him a little better. So he's an MD and PhD um, and is a Harvard-trained uh, psychiatrist and Columbia-trained Buddhist scholar with over 40 years' experience studying the beneficial effects of contemplative practices on healing, learning, and development. He is assistant professor of clinical psychiatry in integrative medicine at Wheel Cornell Medical College, where he um, researches and teaches contemplative self-healing and optimal health. He has taught the philosophy of science and religion, scientific study of contemplative states, and the Indo-Tibetan mind and health sciences at Columbia University, where he is adjunct uh, faculty or adjunct assistant professor at the Columbia Center for Buddhist Studies. Um, welcome, Joe. It's fantastic to have you with us. 
Yes, well, thank you so much for inviting me, uh, Jonathan and Stephen. Uh, it's great, uh, great to be uh, sharing with like-minded folk and to be talking about what I love to talk about. <laughs> Hi, Joe. It's nice to see you. Well, we could just start uh, uh, hearing a little bit about um, your background and about the the circumstance and the the situation that led to founding Nalanda and what that what that institution is um, for our listeners. That would be that would be really helpful. Beautiful. Yes. Well. So I, I, you know, I probably need to give a little bit of a thumbnail of my 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 uh, my life story uh, because I was the you know I kind of got into this trying to bridge these two very different worlds of uh, contemplative uh, living and and learning with uh, you know medicine psychotherapy uh, partly because that's kind of what I grew up in. My dad was a therapist. My both of my parents were raised. Catholic. I was educated in Catholic high school, which was actually a good experience, believe it or not. <laughs> um, and um, so I was. I had a wide range of interests. I was very interested in science, but I was also interested in spirituality and and spiritual psychology. I was reading young as a young man, a lot, and uh, reading a lot of poetry. And um, you know, so uh, I wanted when I went to college to to study the intersection. Uh, I guess you'd say maybe the psychology of religion or the psychology of spiritual experience or something like that. And in my first religion class at the one end of the table was, you know, Bob Thurman. Um, so, and that was actually his first year teaching. Uh, he had just gotten his PhD and done a little research work. Uh, and of course he took us right into the, to the unexcelled Buddhist tantras, the most esoteric uh, and, and, you know, provocative of all, you know, Buddhist teachings, I would say, but, um, but of course, just right up the alley of somebody who was a young junkie, right? Uh, what could be more like there it was, there's the real living, like here's Jung sort of going into musty, uh, you know, libraries somewhere digging up texts in Latin and Greek, uh, which I could never read. And, but, you know, here at the end of the table was a real live human who'd actually been trained by real live humans who 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 lived this stuff so that really kind of hooked me and, and it felt like that was a, the buddhism was a perfect vehicle uh for bringing together this the scientific parts of our culture maybe the you know parts that have you know in, in some ways moved away over the centuries from spirituality and contemplation with the contemplative traditions which at least in the west are sort of at war or in a cold war or, or whatever kind of a war with, with science. Um, and Buddhism had a very different relationship. Like it was, had elements that were scientific elements that were, that were spiritual and had its own kind of psychological core. So it seemed like just perfect. Um, and yeah, I, for when I started, which was quite a long time ago, uh, I would say 40 years, that add a few since that was written. <laughs> um, so when I started out, of course, this was not a, this was not a field. This was just a crazy thing. My parents were worried about me. Uh, and, and of course, when I went off to, uh, uh, when I or left uh, college and went to medical school, I had to keep everything secret. Otherwise, you know, uh, you know, I would have been, uh, you know, subject to all kinds of, you know, uh, you know, maybe maybe teasing, but more likely blackballing. And some of that sort of, you know, th that was a different time. 
but I persisted, you know, it was just like, I guess it was my, you know, uh, uh, in deep seated passion, craving, whatever, to try to bring these two worlds together. And, and fortunately I didn't have to do much because the world did it for me. <laughs> so like, you know, whatever, after I did my residency training, I went to California for a while. By the time I came back to New York, Bob, you know, Bob was at Columbia, his, uh, his, uh, uh, you know, there was an article about him in the, in the, you know, New York Times Magazine, you know, the Dalai Lama was everybody loved the Dalai Lama. Uh, so consciousness had shifted and we were in the mindfulness revolution. And that's when, when I was doing my graduate studies with Bob. Um, so I finally scratched the itch of, of trying to kind of not just be fascinated with Buddhist culture or practicing it, but being kind of trained as a scholar. Um, you know, that, uh, that I was working in the psychiatry department at Columbia while I was doing my graduate degree. Um, and the people in my day job said, well, why don't you start a center? <laughs> so I started a center uh, for meditation and healing at Columbia Presbyterian. And that became the kind of, that was my experiential sort of uh, initiation into trying to share this really in an integrated way with real people. Um, and it was really thrilling. On the other hand, what I soon found was that at a conventional institution like Columbia, you know, you can't actually do the kind of learning that that we that you want to do at CIS and we want to do at Nalanda Institute, because the institution is structured like in the psychiatry department. I could teach meditation, but I couldn't teach ethics or, or philosophy. In the religion department, I could teach ethics and philosophy, but I couldn't teach meditation. So it was just like there's a perfect example of how our culture is so siloed and and conflicted that I felt it needed to start a, a, an institution outside, uh, an independent nonprofit. And that's when Melanda Institute was born, inspired by the world's first university, and which was a contemplative university in, in India called Nalanda. Um, and really partly because the Dalai Lama and others around him have taken to referring to the Tibetan tradition by uh, really sort of into, as the Nalanda tradition, um, in honor of the fact that most of the leaders of the different lineages, the different schools, were Nalanda abbots or, or professors or, or members of the, 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 the faculty at sister universities. So essentially, uh, it's their way of saying giving homage to the to the, but also creating a sense of unity and reconnection back to the Indian roots uh, of Tibetan Buddhism. So it's kind of like a Nalanda um, is a kind of uh, uh, whatever I don't know euphemism or 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 uh, encapsulation for Tibetan Buddhism, um, you know, which then in, at the institute we try to integrate with Western disciplines, you know, neuropsychology, psychotherapy, social justice, you know, trying to sort of bring out the various uh, dimensions of the of this ancient culture um, through dialogue with different disciplines that you know, the interface or that are sort of interested in similar, uh, you know, similar kinds of uh, learning and transformation. Uh, Joe, f forgive me for my ignorance around this, but I, I, I looked up the, you know, I looked up the website of the Nalanda Institute and was really interested to kind of look over the offerings. Um, I know that 
there, there, there's an actual physical Nalanda Institute that's being rebuilt in India right now, right? I believe it's in India. And I'm wondering, I didn't see on the website um, whether there was a connection between the two or if you have any relationship with the people that are, are kind of reconstituting it over there. So that's a great question, Stephen. Uh, um, so uh, I did actually go to the inaugural conference uh, where the Indian government and uh, a number of scholars sort of gathered at the sort of near the, the ruins of the old monastery of the old uh, Nalanda University to inaugurate the new Nalanda University. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing is that from our standpoint, uh, one of the one of the, com the complex issues of our day is that the a lot of the money was coming from for to to do this great initiative was coming from the Indian government and and a lot of it was coming from Chinese the Chinese government and Chinese donors. So the Tibetans who are the holders of the actual curriculum of Nalanda University were not invited to the table. Um, and so you know so in a way, I feel like, yes, I'm very much in dialogue with the Nalanda University lineage, but that's in, in the monastic universities in the Tibetan refugee settlements in South India, which is kind of my home monastery, and, and in Dharamsala and, and elsewhere throughout India, rather than the kind of ancient uh, brick and mortar, the, the, the renovated brick and mortar institution, which doesn't have that curriculum, unfortunately, as yet, you know. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that politics. Politics. <laughs> That's fascinating, though. Well, I mean, hopefully it will um, change. Hopefully people will kind of start, you know, working together because um, it would be lovely to see that. Uh, that the, the vision that is beautiful, that of, re, of you know, rekindling this, what used what kind of was like the, the university, the Harvard or the whatever, the, the you know, the Oxford of the, of the Asian world, um, but uh, but unfortunately, you know, there's culture and politics involved, you know, history. And I'm I'm curious, like the the interest from the Chinese in this in endeavor. I mean, that's yeah. So okay, so I'll tell you something about. I mean, Nan is a it's a kind of beautiful vision in a way because uh, you know Bob Thurman's way of really describing how these uh, Buddhist universities arose. Uh, Really, almost almost a thousand years before our great universities in, in Europe, uh, out of the monastic, uh, you know, out of sort of mainstreaming of monastic education, right? So monastic education had been in the in the in the viharas, you know, that were set apart, and and it was about people dropping out of a dysfunctional society, going to refuge, learning how to heal themselves, understand themselves, reconnect, reengage with the world from a different place. But of course, as time went by, it, it became, you know, there, there became an appetite, let's just say, in Indian culture to bring this process into the mainstream, right? To sort of develop a monastic uh, learning institution that wasn't strictly monastic. It was inspired, the, the guts of the curriculum were, was sort of the self-transformation, the psychology, the medicine that were developed by uh, Buddhist monks, but it was open to dialogue with politics, economics, and, you know, ar architecture, the arts. And it was, you didn't have to be a Buddhist and you didn't have to be a monastic to go to Nalanda University. So it was in that sense a university in our, in our day. And of course, uh, it got very well funded. There really wasn't a dark age in India, you know, 
it got very well funded for a thousand years, uh, grew and grew. It was up to ten to fifteen thousand, and and it was very pan Asian in terms of its populace. So there were colleges from East Asia, from Japan, from Korea, from Indonesia, from Nepal, from Ladakh, from Afghanistan. There were there were you know all these local and and of course Tibet ultimately. Um, so. So some of the diffusion of Buddhism to uh, China was informed by monks, uh, Chinese monks who went back to Nalanda to get access to more scriptures, to deepen their philosophical roots and training, and then come back. So, so Nalanda is very much revered and seen as part of the legacy of uh, the Chinese Buddhist lineages. Um, and that's why there's this sort of you know, uh, kind of sense of solidarity or or investment. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Very, very clear. Um, I was going to, before we, we jump into this, this article, um, you maybe preface, uh, preface this a little bit too, uh, as you'd like, but uh, contemplative psychotherapy, uh, it's from a, um, uh, a volume called the art and science of individual and collective well-being. Is that correct? Uh, it's called uh, advances in contemplative uh, psychotherapy, and I think that the the subtitle the subtitle is uh, uh, accelerating uh, healing and transformation. Yeah. Okay. Great. And when is this going to be coming out? Just so our listeners. In June. Yeah. And this is the second. It's the second edition. The first edition came out in 2017. Um, and and the, Rutledge asked us to to do a second, which was a great opportunity uh, to sort of update and and enrich uh, the collection. Just to just to do a little a, a short commercial for you, uh, I was looking. I was on the Amazon website yesterday, looking at it, and uh, you can pre-order it now if, if you'd like. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. We didn't know that. <laughs> Thanks for letting me know. <laughs> Um, one question that, and what's what one of the things that struck me among many things, but one of the themes of of the podcast, which sort of unknowingly has come about, um, is is discussing and and uh, you know I guess just trying to express different approaches to the scholar practitioner. That's really central to CIIS. And I came into a academics after I mean I'm I'm a musician and I wasn't involved in in my, many academics uh, academic pursuits before that. And I came into CIS and for a couple of years just took it for granted the the this scholar practitioner model. But as I met more scholars and I as I got more um, um, connected to more mainstream institutions, I realized that it isn't necessarily this <laughs> mainstream or accepted thing. It can be looked as problematic um, by some, but it's very uh, important in my work. But I think in in CIS for sure. And you start right off the bat in in your introduction here to this volume. Um, talking about that the, the traditional scholar practitioners that uh, you have in this volume, and you yourself being one of them. I was just wondering if you could just share, um, however you'd like, what what that means to you, how you have come to um, define that for yourself, define that in your discourse uh, communities, uh, the challenges, um, the the benefits, whatever couple around that, it would really be be helpful for us. Yeah, well, you know. Uh knowledge in the West has been, uh, you know, fragmented and siloed um, for centuries and, 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 and seen as sort of an, an essential sort of 
you know, consequence side effect of the, uh, the, the, the search for objective knowledge, very specifically, how did that search begin or how is it understood is as a distancing ourselves from our own human subjectivity, right? Like the attempt, the very attempt is sort of get outside of our subjectivity, get outside of our humanity, which is seen as therefore kind of like a source of contamination or distortion or, uh, you know, bias. And to kind of correct for that by sort of, as, as Thomas Nagel, the, the philosopher of law likes to say, having a view from nowhere, right? And that, so, so knowledge gets fractured because there's no human being at the center of it anymore. That this is the sort of growth of the Western university. Uh, there's no human being at the center. The human being doesn't need to understand themselves. They don't need to know how to live well. They don't need to know how to live well with others. Uh, you know, they don't need to know the meaning of their life. All they need to do is gather information like a bunch of busy bees, like Francis Bacon said, you know, like worker bees gather information into the big hive and somehow uh, that the, 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 you know, the, the civilization is going to move forward. So we know where that's left us, right? Is the civilization going off the cliff and, and everyone fragmented from everyone else and themselves. So yeah, that's where I see that the, that the, uh, Indic tradition has a methodology or a sense of uh, a, a method, you know, a, a method of learning and also a, a standards of learning that are much more resonant with all the other cultures on the planet for most of history. I mean, there's not many cultures that have gone this particular way. Um, so most most cultures, it's really education and training. It's about becoming a good human being, a helpful citizen, community member. Uh, maybe gaining a skill, but at the heart of it is is the is the cultivation of individual qualities uh, and the embodiment of, of personal qualities, and and that uh, is viewed with great suspicion on the part of modern uh, the modern academy because the academy was sort of built based on a rhetorical argument that that actually was impossible. Like human beings couldn't know themselves objectively and well, that they couldn't be actually a, a truly sociable that that they were so, you know it, you know inver- inherently self interested and competitive, uh, and you just had to control people the the evil that were or or ignorant nature of human nature you just had to be sort of controlled as as well as as can be, and and that's just you know uh, to me that's the problem that's the major problem with our current civilization. And, and civilizational style, which is now going global through the internet and so on, um, is that it's taken the humanity out of human civilization and it's, and, and it's put a lot of uh, robots, you know, robotic uh, engines of knowledge and, and power and technology and information in the driver's seat. And, and it's, you know, the humans who, who are supposedly at the helm aren't prepared for the job of actually ensuring that everything's heading towards some kind of, you know, well-being, either individual well-being, collective well-being, global well-being. So, yeah, so I, I'm very passionate about the idea that this whole model of knowledge is, is you know, at this point needs to be at least balanced. I mean, I, I think specialization uh, of learning has given us a lot, but there's no, there's no hub, there's no heart, there's no center anywhere. And now, if you look at my map for this, you may be familiar with the one particular Buddhist teaching that that arrived 
late in the history of the unfolding of Buddhism in India called the Kala Chakra uh, teaching, the Wheel of Time teaching. And that has a beautiful prophecy uh, that actually we humans are finally going to get it together in a few like in a few centuries from now, uh, the 23rd century, uh, you know, uh, and um, and that we're going to be able to sort of tame our, our own nature uh, so that we don't need oppressive governments anymore. And we will have diverse communities and cultures uh, and we're going to be able to get along and learn how to be blissful together uh, and creative together. Um, but one essence of that is that spirituality is seen as a as a uh, what like so like a perennial science, right? An akshara vidya, a, a kind of scientific, uh, you know, uh, knowledge and skill or art, where uh, that allows a human to bring to bring the best out in the human being, human mind, body, heart, and that that needs to be at the center of all the other disciplines. So there's disciplines. There's what they call outer sciences. Disciplines that have to do with objective nature, you know, astrology, astrophysics, uh, you know, geology, uh, herbology, and so on. Then there's inner sciences that have to do with living things, like like medicine, uh, you know, botany, and so on. Um, and, you know, and then there's uh, the the uh, trans what I call the transformational science of human transformation of getting bringing the best out of our nature, getting over our evolutionary blocks of the survival, self-protective survival mode and so on. So yeah, so that's my view is that this is the future that we have to actually, everybody has to have the, the, the scholar practitioner in the sense of bringing some learning and wisdom to how to be a human being. If, we, if we're not gonna go off the cliff and self-destruct and take the planet with us. I was, uh, you know, looking at the at the table in your introduction, table one one, and I st also struck by your your kind of uh, description of the the arc of development, the um, kind of evolutionary arc, and I mean I don't know why it should have would would have taken me by surprise, but that in the in the in the third part of it, as you as you uh, advance within this kind of pedagogy or in this mode of development the uh the final stages have to do with embodiment and i think you might think from a western perspective that the embodiment would come first you build from the low you know you would say that that's the foundation like in maslow's triangle you'd have to take care of all of the kind of the basics of the body make sure that it's taken care of but this is a very different way of looking at embodiment it's preparing the vessel so that the spirit, I guess you could say, maybe metaphorically, can descend into it and and carry it. Um, but I was wondering maybe if you could talk a little bit about that, and also, you know, this tension between science and spirit that uh, you're addressing in in your book and in your work. Great, beautiful. Yeah. Well, uh, so agreed that uh, you know the body does appear in the in the very beginning of. Uh, whether it's a yoga path or a Buddhist path, uh, in terms of becoming uh, connected with awareness, becoming consciously embodied, and bringing benevolence to being in a living body, which is which we need more of. So that what we're talking about when we're talking about the third 
uh, I call them the waves of, of contemplative science and practice, um, but the, the third uh, 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 form of embodied practice is actually not uh, strictly the what we, what's called the coarse body, that is the conventional solid material body. It's a way of bringing consciousness into intimate dialogue with our physicality in such a way that something kind of you know new is created in a way, a new kind of embodiment that uh, that is fully uh, conscious rather than having sort of this you know uh, largely unconscious uh, roots in in something somatic that we're not really connected to. It's learning to really connect to the roots and also not just connect to the, the roots of our of our vitality of our of our psyche and 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 so on, but also really tapping in very specifically to the kinds of, uh, I guess you know what I, I sometimes call clean energy or you know the kinds of capacities within us that are the most uh, adaptive, the most beneficial, the most uh, transformative, and so that amounts to a kind of spiritual spiritualization of the body, like a, in a way, a dematerialization of an ordinary unconscious embodiment, which is all about, in a way, is run by the delusion of separateness and the sense of self, self-protection, and instead tapping into the, the way in which the body uh, is also the temple or the, 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 the residence of our spirit in the sense of the elements of us that are the most uh, progressive, the most uh, lasting and enduring, namely our capacity for love, for wisdom, all these things that, that are seen as kind of like our essence. So learning how to go into that, uh, you know, and essentially uh, transform our embodiment. It's becoming aware of our embodiment, not just as, it, as, it, as a fact, as a datum of evolution and conditioning, but learning how to bring full science, art, and consciousness, and spirit, and values into consciously kind of, you know, reforming, uh, picking those elements of, of, of our nature and our consciousness and, and energies that are the most generative and the most transformative, connective, beneficial. So it really is kind of an art of, re, of, of you, nowadays we talk about neuroplasticity, you know, like, you know, and, and genomic fluidity. It's really about an art about creating the body, you know, from the standpoint of, of the higher awareness or spirit um, that really sees what is needed now, what is most needed, what is most beneficial for, for all of us, for our lives. Yeah. Joe, I was wondering if you could discuss a little bit about how in your work this I guess a um, multidisciplinary approach or, or cross-cultural approach as well, like uh, in terms of finding those, uh, finding the places which things can start to resonate together, which they can kind of meet. Um, it seems as though consciousness would be one place that um, science opens to and can be, can be uh, and, and through dialogue and through um, studies and, and whatnot and, and work like your own, you can kind of make make a concept like that open up a little bit more than maybe the, the, the mainstream sciences are, are tried, try to, are, are allow in a way. 
Um, and then in this, in the sense of the Eastern perspective, the Buddhist perspective, I mean, it's a different, different idea of consciousness in a way, or, and I'm just wondering how you, like, if that's a place that you're navigating the, the kind of the convergences here, and if you could kind of bring out that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, actually, if you don't mind, before I dive into that, which is a great invitation, I want to come back to an afterthought I have about, about Stephen's question. And that is, uh, you know, we talk a lot about the subtle body in in both the yogic traditions and in the and in the Buddhist tantric traditions. A lot of people who are interested in Buddhism are not aware that there is this esoteric form of, of Buddhist teaching that's resonant with with Indic uh, with Hindu tantras and and other mystical traditions. I would say like Sufism and and Kabbalah and and, and Christ, Christian mysticism. Um, but we talk a lot about the subtle body, which and 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 you know, there's been some really interesting uh, new work done uh, looking at the history of the concept and uh, and so on and so forth. But what people maybe don't appreciate, which which I uh, I think is really worth bringing out, is that in a way the purpose of the subtle body that is, what is a subtle body? It's an interoceptive experience that is uh, able to open to. Uh, the, the capacity, the full capacity for well-being, and 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 uh, open awareness, or or you know higher awareness, or non-self protective awareness, you know. Um, but the purpose of the subtle body and accessing those core uh, networks and capacities for well-being and transcendence and self-transcendence—that's the core of our life—is actually arriving at what's called the extremely subtle body. And the extremely so we think about the subtle body is far out. The extremely subtle body is extremely is so far out, and and what it is really is something that you know isn't really like a body at all. And and that's I think something to be in terms of this issue of spirituality and and physics or science or whatever. In a way, it's much more like under, like a quantum understanding of the the fluidity, the total fluidity and total interconnectivity or field-like nature of life, of being of embodiment. And, and imagine restructuring our consciousness and our sense of identity and 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 agency so that it, it, that wasn't just an idea, but that actually we really were coming and living from that place of feeling totally interconnected with and part of our environment, our social environment, our natural environment. So like a kind of, you know, a new, it's a new level of consciousness as well as a new level of embodiment that is really addressed there. Um, and I love as part of that, the, especially in the Kala Chakra, just a very interesting way in which they anticipated, like they anticipated so many things, but they anticipated quantum physics. They talked about that the subtle, the fundamental nature of matter is not solid, but is space. And that there are particles, of, uh, there are space particles out of which all the other particles, uh, you know, the solids, the liquids and gases and so on emerge. Um, and of course that then makes it really much more, it, it, as uh, David Bohm and others uh, kind of have been talking about it. Now we have uh, lots of people that are panpsychists and so on. Uh, the understanding that that well, if, if the fundamental structure of matter is space, then mind doesn't become so weird anymore, right? It's like it's not such an alien in in the physical universe. It may just be sort of like a slightly 
supercharged or, or whatever different kind of space, an information space, right? So anyway, that's that's something that excites me a lot. And, and I think, it, again, so when we talk about embodiment, we're not talking about, you know, just being more in touch with our, our ordinary sense of our physical body. We're talking about really a very different way of being embodied that is, you know, not trapped in, in the sort of Gnostic sense. It's not trapped in a physical body. It's discovering the physical body as a as belonging in, in and is not mine as, as nature or universe in, in itself. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Thank you. That's that's really beautiful. Jonathan, I just I just want to. I want to jump in just for a second and then we can get back to Jonathan's question. But while you were speaking earlier, I was thinking while you were speaking about the rainbow body, the rainbow body kind of popped into my head and thinking about the the body as subtle body. And then I thought, well, maybe that's a little bit too metaphysical. I won't. And I, 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 I edited myself. I, I um, kept myself from saying it, but as you're speaking, what's, what was coming to me was, uh, embodiment as spaciousness that as um, that, and I was asking myself well what is health I mean it's not just mental health I mean what you're doing is psychology but it's not just mental health it it has to do with the quality of the air that we breathe and the way we breathe it the quality of the water we drink and the way that we drink that's mindful mindfulness but also the way that we process it and in order to process things fully and in a healthy way we have to have a certain suppleness in our body, so we need to exercise in a proper way. And uh, and in order to be able to process all of this, we need a certain degree of presence. And that ultimate, the ultimate goal is love. So that's what the embodiment was. And all of this was like coming to me, and then you just, you stopped and said, no, 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 I want to go a little bit further. And I want to thank you because you, you uh, gave me everything that I was thinking, couldn't articulate. Uh, really beautifully. So thank you. And I'm sorry, Jonathan, for interrupting. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, I think that this whole idea of really discovering the, the, the way in which we are embedded, we are creatures of space and life. And, and you know, the, the fact that now science is kind of corroborating this in so many ways that, that our physical matter is not, is not solid, and that, that our, our genes are fluid, that our brains are plastic. It's just, these are all uh, elements in science that are coming, that are converging and re reconnecting with with spirituality. Which, again, for so many centuries, the main mission, I think, the main research project of science was to was to find a way to explain reality that was completely opposite to and, and disproved in every, in every way, uh, creationist, uh, theistic, uh, religious traditions. And, and guess what? We came out the, came out the back, saw the back end and we're, we're back in dialogue with, with spirituality, whether we like it or not. Um, and, and of course, I think we, we need it, as I've said, like before that, 
if we don't have that bigger picture, like why am I here? What am I, where am I coming? And where did I come from? Where am I going? What am I capable of? We don't have that. Then we're all kind of in the dark, you know, we're all just fumbling around in the dark uh, as, as we can see from uh, how, how we're living. I mean, from the Buddhist standpoint, it, so the way we do interdisciplinary uh, uh, matrix from within the standpoint of Nalanda Institute uh, is based on the basic disciplinary framework of Buddhist culture. Like, as you know, the foundation of all Buddhist culture is the first teaching the Buddha gave, the teaching of the noble truths. And that's a kind of therapeutic uh, teaching. It's really about healing and healing and liberation. It's both soteriological, spiritual, and it's also it's also uh, kind of medical in a way, or you know, healing the human condition, kind of somewhere in the middle there. Um, but anyway, the, the the essence of the path, which is the fourth truth, how do we get to experience the Buddha's what the Buddha described as the elixir of immortality, as as blissful liberation from uh, you know from bondage to again, I would say, evolutionary programming you know, uh, delusion, you know, self-referential uh, processing and so on. And the path has three disciplines, right? So it's, it's eightfold path. Since eight is a big number, we, we uh, focus on the three disciplines. And the three essential disciplines are meditation, of course, obviously, but the other is wisdom and the third is ethics. So the way we frame the interdisciplinary dialogue from a Buddhist perspective is, you know, Meditation is the dialogue, you know, meditation as a discipline is in dialogue with neuroscience, right? How do, how do we, uh, you know, how do we learn to calm and transform our, our nervous systems and, and the sort of matrix of, uh, of consciousness? Uh, wisdom is in dialogue with psychology, right? Because again, the one thing about psychotherapy that it make that, uh, that makes it, Dear, near and dear to my heart, is that it is a, a scholar practitioner practice. It is an embodied practice. It is a practice that's unlike any, Lord knows how far it ever managed to get it installed in Western scientific materialism or, you know, a lot of slate of hand, I think. Um, but, um, but it is a place where we, uh, we're practicing being human and really learning how to understand the meaning and purpose of human life and uh, of our consciousness. It's phenomenological, right? But by, by, by its very nature, experiential and phenomenological. So, so that dialogue is wisdom is, is, you know, sort of like the insight that we need to, to be free, to live well. That's the dialogue there. Um, and of course, philosophy needs to be in there too. Uh, hopefully, psychotherapy has a, good, a healthy dose of philosophy and spirituality in it. Um, but then the other living living place of spirituality is in ethics, right? And that's where we bring in social justice. So the dialogue there is, how do you live well with others? You know, how do you care for yourself responsibly so that you're not a burden or a harm to others and, and or, or yourself and you're you're well? Like happiness, from a Buddhist point of view, is actually a social responsibility. Like, because a happy a happy human is 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 a non-harming human, um, and and so you know that's the way we bring in the interdisciplinary uh, sort of matrix, and uh, you know again it sort of leaves lots of room for you know for us to cover a lot of territory, <laughs> but it, it creates that sort of you know 
uh, the, the whole human, the kind of holistic or integrative uh, context uh, from a Buddhist point of view, that is what you need, you know, to uh, to really have an authentic, a healing, transformative, liberating uh, path. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. And I would say also to get into a discussion of ethics that involves the more than human too in a way like if because if we're going to if we're going to use that word human also that has a history in the west and humanism for instance but you know rather than do psychic or that if we acknowledge that we are a body in place and time but we also have potential and different planes and parts of the being that spread or that that extend to the cosmic um it's kind of decenters that that human or the human in a sense to open up to a like a, a, I think a really important um, notions that can help us engage, you know, more in in embodied sense, more in a in a in like a sense in which we can actually hold the other, like whether that's the earth, or the cosmic, or another another cultural being, um, you know, in in a in like a relational and and affective relationship that is that is that is not so asymmetrical or not asymmetrical at all <laughs> totally yeah yeah this is one way in which i think buddhism is a kind of healthy uh, uh corrective or dialogue dialogue partner with the sort of traditional uh human you know anthropocentric you know spirituality um in the West, um, although there's all kinds of sacred activism and, and stuff like that in, in Western spirituality as well. Um, but the idea being, yeah, of course, it's all life. All life is our family, right? And so that's, or breaking down the sort of human animal uh, barrier, there's, there's a little more challenge breaking down the, the uh, you know, sensitive, uh, you know, the barrier with with plant life, but th there's ways of doing that in the Buddhist tradition, uh, uh, you know. But uh, but certainly there's an understanding. There's a way in which Buddhist psychology from the beginning was was socially engaged. Like some, you know, a lot of people have sort of had this debate about whether the idea of socially engaged Buddhism is just like a a, a westernized, uh, 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 you know, uh, revision. Um, but it's clear from the Buddha's, uh, uh, you know, who he chose to teach, the language he used, the way he structured the Sangha, the way he talked about politics, which he did talk about politics. It's clear that he had a political agenda and a social agenda of egalitarianism, of nonviolence, uh, and of creating communities that, that are, what, as, you know, MLK would say, beloved communities that are communities where human beings can be safe and thrive. And of course, there's also a way in which Buddhism is an eco-psychology from the beginning, because in Buddhism, your rupa skanda, like the, the physical material aggregate uh, that, you know, we would normally identify as my body, from a Buddhist point of view, technically, is my body and my and my whole physical environment. That's my rupa skanda. Like all the every all the matter around me is is also part of my rupa skanda. You know, so it's all really. Uh, if I'm going to take care of my body and understand it, uh, I need to take care of the body of the planet, um, and and all the other life forms that support it. Um, and that kind of is uh, 
made more explicit in the Kalachakra teachings, where you have this sort of beautiful ecological vision of the planet becoming a medicine planet. You know, everything on the planet being learning how to take everything on the planet and, and use it as medicine as opposed to poison, obviously. Um, and uh, and uh, and also the same for the the social body that the social body becomes a collect that we understand that we're distributed through a collectivity of life um, that includes all all sensitive things. So, yeah, there's a lot of wisdom there for us to mine, and we certainly need it. <laughs> given, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to like to try to try to work through some of these binaries that seem so absolute in how we inherit them. I'll you know, speak for myself, but it's it's it is very much the the worldview that I inherited came came with these very hard binaries to to break and 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 the privileging the 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 type the certain mind that can can always figure out which one is is going to give you a certain advantage or a disadvantage and it's really uh that that's not going to solve our problems Stefan, do you have a qu uh, question you want to jump in uh hmm. well i was thinking of two things uh um the question that I actually had. And then uh, while you were talking, I was also thinking of, um, uh, I guess, um, what is it called? Uh, spontaneous co-arising, right? That the idea that we, that of, of the interconnectivity and how all of the parts uh, are actually needed to form the whole. And then, I, and then the thought occurred to me that um, there's a decision-making process that goes into putting together a book, especially an edited book, and that you have very particular people that are um, that are. I'm I'm looking at the the uh, right now at the um, table of contents for the older uh, edition of the book, and I'm thinking that uh, I didn't take notes on this, but there was there were certain people that you brought up in the in introduction that you gave us to read that I'm not seeing their names here. And I'm wondering about maybe the decision-making process for bringing the, this particular group of people together. And if, the, if in a way that you're, you're kind of putting together, or trying to have people that represent many of these different pieces that we're talking about here. And then uh, the, the other thing, if we have time, and maybe we don't, but I'm really interested in if, if there's, if, in, in terms of you know dependent core rising, uh, that each moment itself is kind of is sacrosanct. Each moment is is itself the eternity, and, and if we're present, then there's no past and there's no future. There's still this prophecy of the future uh, that of the twenty third century, and I'm curious about. Is, is that seen in, the, in terms of karma? Is it like prarabdha karma, this idea that it's just the tendency that's, I don't, I don't know how to articulate it any better than that, but you can yeah. answer yeah. either one of those. Yeah. Okay, well, so the book, the, the second edition, we definitely have a, a, an editorial wish to uh, match what we're doing in, in pedagogically and in community in our teaching which is to bring different voices in and to you know, sort of help address the larger systemic issues and the issues of cultural appropriation and so on that, that are raised in the kind of work that we're doing, right? So we do have, we, we brought in a number of um, 
you know, our, uh, you know, teachers uh, who are ethical activists, sort of anti-racist activists, but who are also on our faculty, people like Lama Rod Owens and Jan Willis, who we just saw last night, it was just awesome. Um, and really trying to address, as well as uh, Camilla Majid, who's a therapist, who's a, psych a psychologist who is looking at, you know, the, the kind of dimension of to what extent uh, uh, our psychologies are liberative, are truly liberative, to what extent they're part of an oppressive social system uh, that that pathologizes uh, individuals and and kind of individualizes individualizes problems, systemic problems, in order to kind of get away to to get rid of them or or, or uh, hide them. And so we're trying to bring these larger questions so that it's not just about the siloed profession of psychotherapy where you're just sitting with this one person and that's the whole microcosm, but we're understanding that the, that one person is, and, and we are in a system in, the, in families and communities and cultures and trying to address uh, that, uh, the systemic dimension in part because we really believe that, you know, community is one of the big gaping holes in our, in our culture. Right, uh, and that you know this hyper individualism of modern culture uh, has has not only created these huge race divisions and and, and class divisions and and other divisions, um, but it's it's really uh, you know uh, you know harming all of us in a very powerful way through through enforcing alienation instead of instead of belonging and, and community. So so that um, is definitely part of this you know, vision uh, that, the, that the Buddha uh, taught is that you have to have, in order for humans to be, to thrive, and in a way it's like an indigenous teaching, there, there has to be a community that is a thriving, loving, holding community. And, you know, again, so if we're going to be really Buddhist, we can't just be one Buddhist in a, in a, in a, uh, in a sea of, of uh, competitive, you know, capitalist <laughs> supremacist culture. We need to change the culture so that the culture is supportive of, of liberation and awakening. Um, and that, you know, so that so that's part of the attempt of this new edition, as well as addressing some Tibetan scholars and practitioners who who talk about the issues of how, uh, from their standpoint, how uh, the Buddhist tradition is being translated and, and and applied in the Western world to try to sort of really help keep us honest or open those dimensions of, of dialogue. Um, as far as the sort of division of the Kal Chakra, so, you know, in the, in the Buddha's lifetime, there's a teaching that, uh, you know, uh, that the community uh, that he created, the Sangha, the Bhikshu Sangha, the community of, of mendicants, uh, would need to be uh, extended into the lay community through creating what's called a, a Buddha Kshetra, a Buddha field, or a Buddha verse, or a, 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 a liberative field. And, and the understanding there is that, yeah, that field of living beings is only going to arise to the extent that the beings that are in, in any particular culture, society, are developing, are developing themselves and getting support being developed through the community. So that's the idea is that, uh, you know, it, there is a, in Buddhist culture, it's not, time is not cyclical. The Kala Chakra teaching is often understood as about cycles of time, but it's really more about a kind of timeless progression, like the evolution of consciousness 
is seen as timeless in the sense that we're all already have the capacity to to be in in utopia to be in Shambhala to be in to be liberated live together it's all already happened from the from the point of the visionary point of view of the teaching this is where history is going and however the history takes time to get there so one of the great teachings of the kalachakra is that the way that the buddha kalachakra uh who is actually more like a kind of christ like figure than than other forms of buddha it shows his compassion toward living beings by being patient with their with their own development so like he sees where evolution is going but he realizes that he can't rush people or, or living beings that living beings need to take their own time to mature and ripen their consciousness and their embodiment to so that they can actually support this kind of utopic vision so that's kind of the both the the, the 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 eternity is in in sort of being deeply uh, uh, absorbed in the moment enough that you can see all the in, interdependent causality radiating out in space and time, right? You can see the future. You can see the, the past. You can see that there is no future and no past. But at the same time, on a relative level, there is, uh, you know, uh, transformation. Right. And so you also see that people, everybody else needs to wake up to that reality and they're taking their time. They're on taking their own sweet time to do that. <laughs> That's beautiful, beautiful uh, description and, and vision. Thanks so much for sharing, sharing that. Um, and I think that takes us to the end of this segment of the podcast our time is up <laughs> in a very practical way exactly um, sense but i think that this uh that we should keep the keep the intentions going and 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 do something again in the future maybe um under our new uh, concentration which is called acts asian contemplative and transcultural studies uh who's the is is organized um chaired by debashish Banerjee, our chair but i think that uh the, the two of you uh would have a, a great uh We'll have a great conversation uh, and deepen these ideas. Um, so, Stefan, do you want to have him back in the future? Yeah, <laughs> we should do that if you'll come. I really, I really absolutely. enjoyed having you come on and listening to you and and chatting with you. Uh, I felt like we just barely scratched the surface of, I know, of I know. Uh, your depths. So, I would love an, another opportunity to speak with you. Yeah, it's wonderful. So, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm just grateful to connect with with folks who have shared that that common spirit and, and concern for the, for the, mm -hmm. for the planet. Um, so I'm happy to come back anytime. Okay. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Let's keep on uh, forging these connections between the two institutions. I think that's a good intention to have. Wonderful. Take care. Thanks. Good to meet you, Stefan. Thanks, Jonathan. Take care. Be well. Bye-bye. Be well.